When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the chiclet that made us who we are. My name is Karen O'Donoghue and I'm a writer and a half-priced duck on Christmas Eve. Joining me is award-winning author and the youngest gaffer the Newcastle Boatyards has ever seen, Millie Johnson. <laughs> Hello. I like to do a themed intro. Hello, Millie. <laughs> Hello. Hello. I've never been introduced to that before. Anything, anything that says the youngest that is associated with my name sort of gets my vote. I don't care what it 22 is. 22 you know. years old and already a gaffer. Something uh, unknown. Something <laughs> I uh, never understood as a, even a job before I started reading this book. But now when John yes. became gaffer at 22, I was like, my God, this man. <laughs> yes, he's quite a piece, isn't he? You just think, oh, yes. So today yes. we're talking about The boy. 15 Streets by Catherine Cookson, a book that you've chosen and that I've just read for the first time and I loved it. And I'd love to know uh, why you chose it and why you love it. I, I've i always been a fan of Catherine Cookson for, for many years and, and it was between this and the Mallon Streak. I loved the Mallon Streak. It was, but, but this one... Um, I think the background to the book, because my I used to have little Scottish aunts who used to come down and stay, and uh, they used to bring their old Catherine Cookson's, and I used to load them with my uh, my Agatha Christie's, mm. and uh, and one day they said, "This is the one you need to read," and it was the Fifteen Streets. Oh, this was the best thing in, in sliced bread, I'll, you know, and uh, and so I I read this Fifteen Streets, and it's one of her earlier works. Mm. And I absolutely saw where they were coming from. And even though I've read, I think I've read over the years, every single book that Catherine Cookson has ever written. Quite this an achievement. One will, it's, yeah, but I, I loved her, you know, and when you, you kind of get into a groove of a, of a novelist and, and this is going on, you know, I was a teenager when I first started, so it's, you know, years. <laughs> and, um, but this one stood just head and shoulders above all the others. And I could tell it was an early book. I could tell it because there's a lot of Catherine Cookson in it. And the, the earlier books of novelists do tend to have more of the novelist in. And, um, and, and when you know Catherine Cookson's life story, you can, you can see the points that she is almost working through as therapy. That, I mean, she was known as Katie herself when she was a, mm. a little girl. And there is a, a little girl called Katie in this book who suffers the shame, as the real Catherine did, about having to go to the pawn shops and and uh, and have to, you know, get some money and feeling very poor and that shame and the guilt of of being um, of having no money, etc. And and I could, it was like almost reading a a part of, of Catherine Cookson's diary. Mm. I mean, I I loved her. I I think she's had a fascinating life. But but this story's just it's got everything in it for me, and it's it's a little bit unusual for Catherine Cookson because it's got a, a little bit of um, of the supernatural in it as well. And she's she's yeah. a very grounded author, and um, and doesn't do that usually. Um, and uh, and it it just seemed to be 
kind of like a modern day Jane Eyre for me. This it had everything. It had the gorgeous hero. It had this lovely, beautiful uh, school teacher, a heroine that you could identify with. You had the family, the community spirit, the the village life who were very quick to judge and also very quick to forgive. It had all the drama. It's one of those books you get totally and utterly swept up in. I co- and I, that's why I loved it. I, I, I completely, wonderfully said, I completely agree with you. My experience with Catherine Cookson is not, and I think this is quite, quite common maybe, um, is not so much as an author, but as a sort of like a straight to TV franchise. You know, you, yes, you turn on yes. like ITV on a Saturday evening or whatever, it be Catherine Cookson's The Glass Virgin or something. Yes, that's right. Yes. I have watched yep. so many of these things. It's proper like you're homesick, you're with your mom, kind of you're both under the covers, like something bad's happening in and around World War One. Someone's not yes. coming home from war <laughs> and you don't know who. Yeah, <laughs> yep, that's right. Yeah. And so for me, she's she's a, a name that up until now has been synonymous with just real comfort. And yes. it really, and obviously I kind of knew that she had a lot of very gritty themes in her work and I had mm. kind of absorbed them through osmosis through these many adaptations that have been made over the years. Um, mm. But I don't, I had never got to appreciate her just as a writer in terms of like, you know, the words on the page. There is just mm-hmm. a fluidity to her writing that is so... It's just your classic. It's it's easy to read and it's hard to put down, you know. But there's a real yes. poetry yes. to it that I I loved and I was completely gripped by this the whole way through. Um, and before we get into the nitty gritty, I'm just going to do a quick plot summary of it, okay, which sure. I have struggled to write down over here. <laughs> um, in the poorest area of Newcastle lies the 15 Streets, a slum that is home to the dockyard workers and the impoverished Irish Catholic community in the late 19th century. Among them are the O'Briens, a family that are notorious for fighting and drama. Among them is Mary Ellen, their mother, her husband Shane, her adult sons John, Dominic and Mick, and her younger daughters Molly and Katie. Their lives are thrown into disarray when the Brackens move next door, who are wealthy spiritual healers speaking out against the megalomania and control of the Catholic Church. The violent Dominic starts to violently pursue Christine Bracken, who is in love with John. Meanwhile, John falls in love with Mary Lillowen, the local school teacher. What follows is a Cain and Abel story between Dominic and John about class, money, death, religion, and family. I've kind of it's it's a hard one to It's all in there. It's all in there, isn't it's, it? That's just everything. It's all in there. It's it really is. And uh you you said at the very beginning that um this is and and I do agree with you. I think there's a lot of um discussion and debate around Oh, how much are, in particular, women novelists putting of themselves into a book? And Mm. while I do think that is a somewhat gendered conversation, I Mm. also think that novelists, the earlier back you go, the the more they're working off of personal experience and the less they're working off of craft because the only way to write a novel is to teach yourself how. And when you haven't developed that craft yet, you are are kind of relying on a lot of personal experiences. Mm. And Catherine Cookson has said that, like, when she looks back at, or what she had said when she was alive, that when she looks back at her earlier novels, she sees the great bitterness that was within her. The, she, yeah. the bitterness she, and the rage at poverty. And I think poverty mm. is the thing that is the most extraordinarily rendered in this book from the get-go. Yeah, it, it is because, um, but also in this book, there is there is a lot of introspection. You know, her characters um, are, are thinking a lot. John, I think it's John who says... Um, 
that you know he, he he hankers for something more than he's got and you know you just know that the end of the book he's going to get it you know because he, he does become a, a young gaffer he's very respected etc but but he, he's, he's hankering to get out of this poverty and he just sees, you know, that he looks at his mother who's pregnant at 45 and thinks, you know, she works and I work and I come home and I tip up and then it all starts again. And is this it? Is this all I've got in life? You know, because you, you, I, I, you, even I, I look back to that era and think, you know, what did they do it for? They just worked to live. Yeah, that was it. And there was no, you know, they might get, you know, a, a Sunday or half a Sunday off. And, and that was it. Their, their whole kind of any living they had to be done had to be done in these few hours per week. And this grinding poverty that was almost inescapable. And uh, and it's a real it's a real story of hope. I think this that this character breaks out of you can just see the beginnings of this character breaking out of of this poverty. And, and you when when the story ends, I was like wishing, I was wishing them to be rich and have one of the big houses that they wanted to at the end. But it's it's a it's a even though it was one of her earlier books, it's very wise. It's it's well, the Americans all see her books as as pieces of history, and it's and it's right, you know. But we've got this these lovely characters that think a lot in this book, and and you can see it's almost see you're getting into Catherine Cookson's head of her almost working out herself. What is going on um, with with life and and um, and the struggles that they've got, wanting more and and at the same time, not some of them not being able to escape the the, the plight that they they've got that they the cards that they've been dealt. It's it's so true, and what she's so good at as well. I love your point about the the amount of interiority in these books. Um, and you get so much inside John's head, so much in Mary Ellen's head, even some of the other kids. Um, and there's this thing where she's great at doing people with these internal monologues that are quite, in many places, quite bitter, quite um, negative or whatever, but they're still deeply lovable people. Like there's several mm. parts throughout the book where John, he, he sort of, he's looking at, he's got a huge responses to the weather for example like he's looking at the sort of mm. a, it's a, like a lovely sunny rare day in newcastle and he's like why i hate i hate this i hate the way it shows up the grime even more right, when everything's yeah. gray everything blends into a sort of gray scaled you know scape mm. of nothingness when it's bright i can see the age on my mother's face i can see the dirt i can see the shabbiness and similarly, there's this other part later in the novel where he's, um, it's snowing and the whole place is totally blanketed in this beautiful white snow and like rich and poor are all sliding on the ice. And it's this beautiful yeah. scene that you, 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 you kind of, you'd almost see it in a kind of Christmas card of Victorian England, you know. And he's sort of looking at being like, you know, tomorrow it's just going to be grey slush and like they're, they're, they're all kind of fooling themselves. And it should be hard yes. to like a character that thinks that way but you're just so you're so with him and you're so with them the whole way i loved it but it's not just this thing where it's like oh they've got nothing to eat isn't it terrible it's so nuanced it's so laser focused there's a bit in the beginning of chapter two that i'm just going to read out it's very short but it begins with poverty is comparative there were those who do not live in 
There were those who did not live in the 15 streets who considered the people living there to be of one stratum, the lowest stratum, but the people inside this stratum knew that there were three different levels, the upper, the middle, and the lower. And it sort of goes through like these 15 streets, this one slum being like, well, no, this one has an extra room. This one you have That's to right. walk all the way around the house to get to the tap. And this one is yes. a tap kind of at the end of the gate, so it's slightly better. Yeah. And it's just yeah. so nuanced. There's this whole thing with um with clothes in the book. I, I'd love for us to talk about mm. that, really get into yes. that. Yeah. Because there's this thing with all, because there's three grown men in the family and mm-hmm. they all have these suits that they pawn when they're out of work. And the, yeah. them being in or out of work is entirely dependent on whether a big enough boat has come in that needs enough men to unload the boat. It's completely mm. out of their hands. They're so disenfranchised from their own fates. And so when they're low on work, they pawn their suits. When they pawn their suits, they can't go anywhere because it's a sh- it's like shameful to be seen anywhere in your work clothes. And those are the only clothes they have. And so when their suits are pawned, they literally, they're grown men just lying down in bed all day because there's mm. nothing. It just, it really got to me. <laughs> I know, I know. It, it does. It's And it's not that long ago, I no. You know, it's it's scary, isn't it? How how sort of recent history this is, this this life about having to pawn suits and uh, you know sprucing yourself up to go and see the uh, when he goes to see the schoolmistress and she says take your coat off. You know, he's just got this coat, and then she he thinks I can't because my suit is really shabby underneath, and she'll see it. You know, it's almost like it's like it's the equivalent of going out when you've um you you've only just ironed your collar and you shove a jumper on and somebody <laughs> says take it off. I can't can't take my jumper off. I've not my shirt underneath. <laughs> oh, I've I've done that once actually, and it was at like a it was at like a book event, and it was so warm. <laughs> I guess we've all done it, love. It's we've just, all done it. It's just so harsh. <laughs> we've all done it. <laughs> I I think it's what the sort of. The thing about the, the clothes is like, and the and the sort of the lack of mobility that's implied by the lack of clothes. It's this thing where like, I think when you're reading a period novel about like very poor people or whatever, you're, or, or you're like, well, if I was in this novel, I would simply invent upward mobility. <laughs> I would, yeah. I would simply uh, walk to the, you know, the nice side of town and sell them an orange or something. You know, you kind of right. you have this simplistic yeah. view in your head that like oh, course, that the yeah. past is this sort of like big flat place that you would be able to navigate because of your your knowledge and your intuition. Mm-hmm. But the, the sort of the immobilizingness of of the not being the clothes, the the sort of feeling so deeply anxious and out of place when you're away mm. from the slum that you hate. Yeah. It's, but there's also the pride as well, you know, the the pride about this the clothes and and also someone's died and, and comes around to the house and, and even though everybody's strapped for cash it's like well how much are you going to pay because this somebody's died and the widow needs flowers and they need this and they need that and and johnny's going through his head with this thinking you know that that widow there is is begging for flowers to to send a a husband off to the to the ground and yet the kids are starving and that money would be better off going into the children's mouths but they they have to give this guy the big send-off with the car and all the pomp and glory as befits a you know a, a, a church service and these he's questioning his whole life in it and oh it's it just sends me shivers when I read this uh, you know again recently and and thought it's it just feels every bit as fresh as the first time that I 
I read it, it, it still it still got me right here. It, and I think that's partly due to the introspection about hearing, being in people's heads. That's the thing. And also what I like, I, I love it, sorry about this no, book, please. is the head hopping. Because people say, oh, you shouldn't head hop, blah, blah. And, and I, I can't see the point in writing in third person if you can't head hop. That is, that is one of the, you know, the, the great advantages of it. And Catherine Cookson head hops all the time in this. One minute you're in Mary Ellen's head, the next minute you're in John's. And I think, well, if it's good enough for her, it's good enough for us, you know. And so there, there go snubs that's, with that's the, so the book snubs when you can't head hop in. That, that is, like, <laughs> I remember one of the first bit of writing advice I ever got was no head hopping. Ah, rubbish. Cobblers. Why do you think there's this whole thing around it? I have no idea. It's like, don't use adverbs. If you want to use an adverb and it fits, use it. I think I think so, some people have just got too much time on their hands and, they <laughs> use a lot of, and think, let's invent some rules to put new writers off. I mean, head hops. Head hopping has, has served me very well. And, and it, it struck me yesterday, um, when it, you know, this last week when I was refreshing it and just having a look and I thought... I hadn't struck me before, you know, that, um, but I thought, she's head-hopping. Yeah. She's head-hopping. Good honour. And it works because we want to see inside Mary Ellen's head. Then we want to see what's happening inside John. They're both in the same room together and I want to know what's happening. I, uh, and, and if we didn't, well, then we would write first person, you know, but, but she does it so well. And I think that's the case with any sort of writing is that all rules can be broken if you do it well. And she does. And it's it's very crafty as well, because I think in the beginning of the book, we, we basically, we have John's head and we have Mary Ellen's head, the mother and the mm. and the eldest son. And then as it goes on, we slowly start to get more characters, but it's kind of glimmers. Mm. Like their, yes. their second eldest daughter, Molly. Molly. I found her fascinating because she is the mm. most... Because the, the family is kind of very... The O'Briens are very much divided into good and bad. It's sort of... John, Mary Ellen and Katie, who's the kind of the youngest and the, the kind of prodigy and she's sort of always everyone's delight and everything. They're the good ones. And then there's Mick and Dominic and Shane, who are sort of alcoholics and they're violent. And then there's sort of Molly, who from the beginning, she's about, she's about 13, 14. Even Mary Ellen saying, you know, she's got a cruel streak, but she's not hard headed. Like she's quite easy to maneuver. But there's nothing there's mm-hmm. nothing much to her. And then as the book goes on, there's the sense that, like, well, really the goodness of Katie, of Katie has overshadowed Molly's right. opportunity to really do anything. And then yes. it's, 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 I've really, I felt a lot for the ambiguity of that character because towards the yes. end of the book, spoilers, Katie is killed yes. in a baffling accident. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Molly shines and Molly shines and Molly's like she has this moment where she's crying in the alleyway outside the house because of her little sister is gone but she's also almost glad that she's out of the way because she has a purpose because her mother is too incapacitated by grief to do anything and she's the little woman and everyone's kind of patting her on the head being like oh you're keeping the house nice for your mom and you're very good (laughs) (laughs) but it's that's just it isn't it and and it's these little it's these little things these little attentions to detail that molly does everything right you know apart from one thing when she drugs the wrong man (laughs) and it's and it's like even in the depth of this awful situation mary ellen is is laughing just like oh god the priest has collapsed he's (laughs) she's drugged the wrong bloke you know and it's like she's not quite there old molly you know (laughs) oh but she's trying i really relate (laughs) 
someone who's yeah. accidentally deleted two podcast episodes in the last year, I relate. <laughs> I have to change your name to Molly. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, as um, I'm not sure what your, I know you're from Yorkshire, but I'm not, you're, mm-hmm. you're, I'm not sure what your heritage is, but um, my reading this as an Irish person, and mm. it's ex- basically exclusively about Irish Catholic characters who are yes. only one generation removed from the motherland, as it were, mm-hmm. was a real... It was quite emotional, actually, if I'm, if I'm, yes. if I'm honest with myself. Um, because I think the, the primary forms of Irish literature that I've read has been um, the, the ones that go to America and the ones mm-hmm. that go to Dublin. <laughs> and, yes. and that's yes. kind of... Everyone has to leave the farm for something. But there's yes. and, and, and but you know there's always this thing and I I actually I read Colm Tobin's like Brooklyn recently and there's this bit where it says oh uh, Eilish is going to New York and her brothers had already gone to the north of England and they had hated it and they seemed very lonely and it's always referred to in this kind of sideline way of of like oh some pe- some people go to you know Newcastle but some people go to New York. <laughs> Yes, and I, yes. you never actually hear yeah. about the people who go to Newcastle, the people who go to Liverpool, the people who mm-hmm. form the basis of the Irish, the Anglo-Irish community that lives here. Yes. And so reading about these people at last, after years of not reading about them, and after years of mm-hmm. like really characterising all English people in Irish novels as being adversaries, but then you have mm-hmm. these Anglo-Irish characters who they're just at the bottom of society, and it's it's. It, for me, it served quite an emotional reminder of how complicated mm. the ties are between these two countries. And it's not as easy mm. as the adversary and the victim. It's so naughty, you know? Mm. Yeah. Well, my heritage um, is Scots and Irish. Mm. Um, the the uh, My mum's Scots, her, her grandma was Irish. And uh, they very much were very device, divided into to Scots and Pro, um, sorry into Catholics and Protestants. Mm. The lines between the two were very, very, very um, upright and uh, and um, prevalent. And so I, um, not that I've inherited any any of that kind of prejudice. It's softened, but I was always aware mm. that um, uh, that even in in my mum's generation that it would have been very frowned on if if she would have have um have gone out with a with a catholic uh, at all you know mm. it's uh, it was it was very you, you stuck to your own and very much in this book you know the catholics and the protestants they even though they they're in newcastle they they come together to to scrap the kids that prejudice is still going on oh god what i liked about this book was that she didn't settle for the for the the evil Irish priest. Mm. She's got one that is a little bit more uh, kind of, you know, the, the power of the priest. They just walk straight into your house. Mm. They tell you who to see, who not to see. But you've also got Father Bailey, a lovely priest who who actually um, uh, really likes the spiritualist guy. He, he really likes Peter. And, and he can see quite a few difference, uh, quite a few similarities between this spiritualist um, uh, religion and his own. Which which was a quite a brave thing to to do, even in the in the fifties in a book, you know, to actually acknowledge this. But I I, I loved her for that, you know. It, you you don't just go for the 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 Irish that straight slam the Irish priest, blah blah. Yeah, um, it, it, it is so much more nuanced than that, and like mm. and and quite like shocking in places because there's this whole. 
I feel quite naive even reading it. There's this 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 chapter three, I think. Is it's just called it's it's a, all the chapters have names, and it's just called Saint Patrick's Day. And I was like, oh, I can't wait for this. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this will be lovely. We'll see them yeah. getting the shamrocks and and getting a bit pissed and having a good time. No. Tell explain what happens in the Saint Patrick's Day. Chapter. Well, this is where the, the kids have a fight, yes. isn't it? They have, they, you've got the Catholic kids um, who are um, one of the, the main kids here is, uh, is Mick, who is John's little brother. Um, and, uh, and they're fighting the Protestant kids and then realise that in their midst is the kid from next door who's a spiritualist. So it's like, well, he's the weirdo. So they all kind of, you know, they, they are united by a common enemy. And nearly kill this poor kid. Nearly kill him. They drive him into the, you know, he nearly drowns in this like mud slick thing. Um, and, uh, and of course, then, then John comes out in defence. And this is where you, you kind of see the relationship between these, um, because they are decent people, the O'Briens, even though the, the priest has said, what are you doing having them in the house, you know? And Mary Ellen's like, I, ooh, <laughs> you know, I can't have them in the house. They're not Catholics, blah, blah. Um, because of this incident, then Mary Ellen has to has to kind of um, stand up for uh, this little boy because right and right and wrong are, are religion apart. That the you know she, she is a good woman, and um, these spiritualists next door she doesn't want her son killing them. Yeah, <laughs> really, that's a bit extreme. But then we get that that very nicely brings John into. Uh, the arena with the spiritualists and and the way that he treats them is with respect and looks after them and of course then Mary Ellen um, is um, who gives birth to um, well a child she's very heavily pregnant it's the spiritualists who help her through this because she's really on the brink of death so this St Patrick's Day and and this fight have have a a great um, impact on, on the lives of them all Really, and I think fundamentally lead to the lead to the big drama that happens when, when Christine, the spiritualist, dies with her own daughter Katie. It's it's incredible as well because the, even the inclusion of the spiritualists at all feels like such a such a big choice because I don't I don't yes. think I mean we've all read a Victorian novel and like they've it's not often that you get these sort of. Um, like very legitimate, very calm, you know, very likable people from like a kooky other religion that's never clearly defined. Like you're kind of almost waiting for the trope to take over and to be like, oh, and they're doing yeah. something mental kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's... And forgiving and forgiving as well. They are so forgiving that they're, they're more forgiving than... Uh, than any of the religions mentioned in the book because that is a lot to forgive what they have to forgive in this book yeah and like this whole thing and it said so i've noticed that Catherine cookson she's a big fan of like a framing device and the the first chapter it's um these two women hannah and someone else someone people two two women not in the o'brien family Mm. basically looking at the o'brien family and looking how Mm. chaotic and terrible and for the birds they are. And they're like, oh, Jesus, Mary Ellen's pregnant again. And the first thing they That's say right. is like, look, she, that woman needs to get an abortion. She can't keep that kid. And like, yeah. well, like they're Catholics, you know, they, te- they tell them to have kids, but do they do anything to actually look after That's them? Right. No, and that's sort of the center of the kind of the hypocrisy around religion in this book is that, mm. 
you've got this the kind of the nasty priest if you want to call him who's like his entire motivations are just built around hating these spiritualists and mm. completely underserves the community he's supposed to be you know leading like they, when when this terrible accident happened when when Katie suddenly dies and Christine in this terrible accident um the first thing he sort of says to the to Mary Ellen and Shane is like well you let in those spiritualists so yeah. you were bad Catholics, so God is angry. And they're like, well, they've lost a child too. And it's like, nah, well, if you will, lie down with dogs kind of thing. It's just so... That's right. It's awful, isn't it's it? It's awful. Yeah. And that bit where, you know, she Mary Ellen prays, prays to God, please stop something. Stop stop my son going away, please. And And, and she prays very hard for something to change the course of John's action. And what happens is is this accident and she must have thought I brought this on myself you know I've prayed for this to happen it's it's a case of really be be careful what you wish for you know very it's very (sighs) it's very catholic I I really recognize it is that like the oh must be my fault (laughs) must be my terrible prayers and my terrible self who ends it's a kind of it's a strange form of like inverted narcissism where yeah. you're you're so bad that you must be the person who's ruining the world you know it's yeah it's a kind of a narcissism in itself which i also recognize <laughs> mm, yeah well there's obviously you know there's there's a there's a great resentment there isn't there? you can see that from Catherine cookson herself in this piece of writing i think there's a great resentment against against well she's railing about everything the church illegitimacy you know life that there's just this behind this beautiful story I I think I can see a Catherine Cookson just ranting at everything and I wonder if this book was some great therapy for her I in my in my daft imagination I, I almost think after this book she felt a little calmer because she'd got everything out on the page that she needed to she shouted at everything it's a, it's a little bit like when you're, you know, when you're reading like Jane Austen, and you can almost feel her figuring out in real time as she's writing. Like, that's right. Hang yeah. on, if I don't get, if we don't get married, we're gonna get thrown out yes. in the street. This whole society yes. where I'm attending parties is fucked from floor to ceiling. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you can like see that like the wit turns to rage on the page when you're you're yes. reading Austen. I think the same thing happens with Cookson, yeah. where she's yeah. like. Ha ha, the priest came over. Hang on a second. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yep. And the way that the Catholic Church and all sort of churches in their own way, especially when they're this dogmatic, really it's they just give you brain damage over <laughs> over a long a long time and there's I think Catholicism is one of the hardest religions to undo. Mm. Um, yeah. because of that dogmaticism, because of that ritual. And like the, reading books like this, it makes sense to me why it's a religion that has been sort of not well persecuted and also how pe- people are just suspicious of them because Catholics yeah. are suspicious of everybody else. And it's like, oh, I get yes. it. I get why you would feel shifty around around this particular religion. It makes a lot of sense. But then again, you've got young Katie going into the confessional booth. Absolutely 
wetting herself because she's stolen this comic and and the priest is really nice to her you know yeah. you're not going to do this again are you and 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 there is there is that salvation yeah, of that grace. lovely priest the the ones the the you you just know that the the religion is not all plastered as bad because this spiritualist religion and the peace that it brings Mary Ellen when she goes into church and sees her daughter and Christine as clear as day and they say, look, you know, we're okay, we're all right, don't worry about us and she she feels blessed by it. So you you get the overall feeling that maybe even though Catherine Cookson has gone in there and, and started to, to beat a drum against the religion, that that also that there is this there is this thing that she wants to believe in, this afterlife and 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 leave us with that that this woman, Mary Ellen, who is who is not a woman prone to fancy, mm. has seen this vision, as it were, of of something beyond our life, and feels comforted by it. It's it's an incredible piece of writing that scene. In that, even though even describing it, you could almost see the TV movie. They're like, and then she sees the ghost of her dead child. But the way yes. it's written is so affecting and so surprising and it's just and really just works on the page where it's this thing where she's sort of this initial period of grief is coming is slowing down a little bit and she kind of is just struck with the idea of being in a church with nobody in it she gets a penny from her husband to light a candle light a penny candle at the at the church and it's just kind of this strange moment where they're kind of their instincts are merged for the first time in their marriage, mm. and she goes yes. and there's emptiness, and she see and she sees Katie, and but her like the description, it's not just like oh I'm okay, mom, bye. It's this very detailed thing where she says, look, me and me and Christine are waiting, and she's like, well, waiting for what? Like we're waiting for our natural time to come when we would have died, and between now and then, we're just in this very joyful thing of being with our loved ones and then after that we'll go to heaven and it's like this it's almost like um it's kind of like magical realism it, it feels very figured out it's very like Catherine was like yeah this is what I think happens when you die this is what I truly think yeah and also that you know she says John's don't worry about John he's going to be really happy yeah you know, and we know then. Oh, great! Marvelous! It's going to be really. Have you seen the TV adaptation? No, I watched a bit of it today. Yeah, which was it's funny seeing Sean Bean in there. Very young, very strapping, very evil yes. Sean Bean. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the first time he'd got the big part. You know, he, he. I think he'd had a couple of bit parts before, and um, and Owen Teal, who plays John in it. I met years ago at um, when I was a student. Um, I had a, a job working in Wales, and he was filming. And and he's got this. He is Welsh, mm. but he's got this Port Albert accent that that can be at <laughs> a switch can just switch to Geordie. You almost he's got one of those Welsh accents that when when a lot of people are either trying to do a Welsh accent, they either slip into Indian or Newcastle. It's it seems to just and and he was brilliant at it. He was he was John personified, and because I. I knew Owen back back then. That was even more special for me. I thought, oh my God, you know, it's Owen. You know, I spent the whole summer with him, blah blah, and what a lovely man he was, you know. And and this this John, this big strapping guy with who really rocks this coat and the hat, you know. And I, I the 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 whoever cast that did it absolutely perfectly. Young John Jane Horrocks as Christine, of course. Yes, yeah, uh, I saw her. Spiritualist. Wait, wait, so did you watch it? 
originally kind of when it was on TV. I watched first. it. I watched it years and years and years ago um, when it came out because I thought, oh my god, it's Owen Teal! Wow, I've got to, you know, I think he was just breaking through into into acting then, you know, before he came big and went to guard walls in the Game of Thrones and things. And I thought that that's just perfect. You know, you're almost more interested in in dramas when you you kind of know the people that are in them. And I recognised him, and I thought he would make a perfect John, and he did, absolutely did. And Jane Horrocks as Christine, because Christine's very fragile and tiny in the in the story. And you know, there's a, a scene where Mary Ellen's, you know, she's she's given she's had a stillbirth, and but she, despite what she feels about Christine, the spiritually, she won't let go of this girl's hand yeah. and. She's knackered and John goes next door and he takes her shoes off and puts her slippers on for her. And you think, oh, God, he's gorgeous. You just, you know, my pants are just falling down <laughs> watching this programme, you know. And and it, it, the, it just, it was all perfect. The casting was just gorgeous, you know, the, and, and the setting and everything. I, I felt as if I was in there being poor with these people. I wonder what happened with Catherine Cook's novels in general, where every single novelist who gets adapted for screen, everyone's always like, oh, they ruined it, they got everything wrong. As far as I can tell, every Catherine Cook's adaptation has been bang on to the line. I, I wonder yes. how that happened. I have no idea. Just very clever casting. There must have been very, very clever casters around. I mean, the, the Mallon Street was the same. That was absolutely fabulous. The the guy who played um, uh, the the head Mallon, I can't remember what his name was, um, and he he wasn't he wasn't good looking, but my God, he was damned attractive. And the and the the governess is it Anna? Um, I'm, you know, my memories. I, I can see them oh, in my just brain. So many but, of them. Oh, it's just what wonderful they they got. I, I mean, I must have seen them all as well. And I and I loved them. I absolutely loved them. They stuck really religiously to the book, and uh, and it worked because the book is fantastic. Why would you not? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The one bit that made me, like, quite uncomfortable... And I'm pretty sure you know the bit I'm going to say is an awful lot of the plot and the conflict hinges on this sort of um, this controversy that happens within this these streets, which is that this girl across the road who is um, learning disabled, her name is Nancy. She's like quite quite heavily uh, learning disabled and she's got a real attachment to the O'Briens. John's always very nice to her. She comes in throughout the book for a cup of tea and kind of leaves again. And then about midway, we find out that she's pregnant. And then it's all hinging on 
who's the father and because she kind of has this crush on John and she feels safe with him she says it's John John is then disgraced it is of course Dominic who's the kind of evil brother and then um, they sort of have this big Cain and Abel moment over it but the way that is rendered like really made me quite uncomfortable um, in the sense that there's this thing when we first meet Nancy where she's kind of like childlike and innocent almost and then once she has sex she kind of becomes kind of devious and yes that's right yeah I was wondering how you felt about that rereading and how you felt about it the first time you read it well it's not politically correct now is it at all it would be kind of she probably wouldn't have written that the, mm. this kind of defilement of an innocent but at the time that went on you know she's writing from life Catherine Cookson now Catherine Cookson was and her mother were both sexually abused. Well, her, her Catherine Cookson, her daughter, a step grandfather, but you know she was she was abused by her her step brother, who was actually her uncle, and she slept with her mother in a bed, and and um, from from what the autobiography the, the biographies say, you know that the step grandfather was trying to get in bed with the mother, you know. So you had these two women, Catherine and her mother, who were both sexually abused within the family. There was an awful lot of it that went on. And so she's just writing from life there that um, that, that abuse did happen, mm. that the barriers were, were down in a lot of cases. And Dominic is, is really awful to his his sister. And uh, and you, you can quite imagine that if, if Katie and Molly were a little bit older, that, you know, that 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 would not stop him giving them a a feel and things because the the barriers were were not were not up there they are with john and he protects his family but but you just dominic is a rotten egg an absolute rotten egg and and he's quite willing to let i mean it was him that kind of in, that deflects it oh it's john it's john look at the way she's looking at him yeah you know it's john and and john John just can't stand this. I mean, the proud, you know, he's, he's got this beautiful woman who he loves, and he just wants to run away and leave it. And you, you, I'm glad he didn't, because you just know that if he had run away, this spectre would be hanging over his head for all time. Uh, yeah, and his and his fa- the, and his family's head, and this thing of like, as soon as the rumor is out there, there's really nothing he can say because it's the sense of like. And that's why the, the whole, the 15 streets, like the, the location of it is yes, so yeah. powerful because you have this thing throughout the novel where you've got all these voices chiming in and out and people passing through. And there's it, the place, as you said at the very beginning, it's this place that can be extremely forgiving and homey. And there's this bit with the the, lady, the, the old widow upstairs who like she gives advice for money, but the advice is quite crap. And But everyone's like, look, if you can save someone from the workhouse by giving her a few pennies, then why not? And they come together, they buy each other wreaths, but they will also like destroy one another based on very little evidence and hearsay. And it can ruin a person's life, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, they they do it in the book, don't they? You know, they're all sort of like, oh, John's the, John's the father and um, of this baby, and then um, when um, when Dominic when when John realizes that Dominic has had something to do with that little boat going so far out because Christine is trying to get away from Dominic, and they end up drowning. John goes for Dominic, and he's lying there, kind of bloodied. Um, and beaten and then Nancy the you know the, the pregnant young lady comes over and says oh Dominic I didn't say anything it what you know I, I kept my mouth shut and then everybody twigs yeah. that it's Dominic and so they all switch they one minute oh we're we're pro Dominic you know we're, we're against John and they realize 
And they, they get Dominic away, not for Dominic's sake, because they want to protect John, because John is going to kill this bloke. And you've got the old lady upstairs who is going... John is, is like going in all the houses. I want to find this guy and I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him for what he's nearly made me um, do. I, you run away with this spectre of this guilt hanging over my head and he's killed this lovely young lady next door and, and his own sister. And, and all the doors are like, oh, John is going into them. I want to find this. And this little Peggy from upstairs going, we'll find him, John, we'll find him. And all the time he's hiding up in Peggy's flat. And, but this is when the community comes together because they're not hiding Dominic because they they want you know they like him, they're hiding Dominic because they love John and they yeah. they don't want John to get put away and hanged for killing this brother, which he would do if they didn't get him away. So you've got this community. It's very very much like living in a village. I I moved to Haworth many years ago, and it was it was very much like that. You know, you are one minute you're in the goldfish bowl, and everybody's looking at your life. The next minute you hop out of the goldfish bowl, and you're looking at everybody else's life within it. Very, it, it really struck me how how brilliantly this is written about a a community. You know, who who look after each other, and but they are very very quick to judge. It's 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 really brilliant. Like it's like it's like a it's constantly turning on a dime the mood and the sort of judgment of of this community the kindness and and that that those chapters are so exciting as well this thing of like john who's so stricken with grief and violence he's just going to kill his brother they keep moving his brother from location to location and they try that that scene you referred to earlier on where um they want to give him sleeping pills so they can move him on a sleeper train out of there uh, move Dominic and uh, the priest takes the pills instead the priest just like dozes off and they're all like uh-huh. <laughs> and the spiritualist has to look after <laughs> the priest a spiritualist he has to look after the priest and oh no he, oh, does, he does he does look after the priest doesn't he and um, um, but uh, yeah it's it's very it's it's just great this it's just got everything in it this book the humour and and the the violence and I mean it even starts off with a fight they're fighting yeah. and this poor woman, she can't get in the middle of them like she usually does. She's raised these sons who are giants, you know, and her, her husband is a giant and she's like nine months pregnant. And usually you could see her like getting in, in the middle of them all, but she can't do it because of this baby. And it must have been horrific, it must have been fighting, drinking. It must have been exhausting for her. It's it, like... It is that thing of the mark of a great novel where you just you just believe it. You're just you're just there, and you just feel like you're standing next to Catherine Cookson at the window, and her, and she's being like, "Now that's Mary Ellen, and she's yes. been yeah. pregnant six times." <laughs> you yes. really feel like she's there with you. And one thing we yeah. haven't actually touched on yet is the the romance. Which how how do you how, like? I I really love Mary. Um, who is the school teacher who like comes into the book at first because she's sort of seen all this potential in little Katie. And, you know, I think it would be quite easy to make that character quite dull of being like, oh, she's a teacher from a nice family and she loves John. But again, because of the very good head hopping, there's like a complexity to her where she just wants to sort of break out of this kind of... Te- like Because she, she's in her own fishbowl. She's in this sort of like big house, other side of the city, Servants watching her, her mother constantly controlling, 
like what she's able to do and she manages to sort of negotiate getting her own sitting room in her house but then her mom won't let the servants light the fires there and she has to take her meals at a certain time and it's this controlling sort of Swiss clock that almost belongs to a different novel but it's still as suffocating as the 15 streets are and I loved as well there's this bit so she kind of saying to John constantly, like, look, you know, I have money. We can start anew. And he's like, no, my pride, all that. Yes. Which, to be to be honest, I see a lot in period books. And yeah, yeah. I could I could do without. <laughs> I'm always just like yeah. screaming at the men, just take her money. She wants to give it to you. <laughs> it's, it's just it's just a great book. It's got bloody everything, doesn't it? I think so. I think so. And uh and as I said, because of the background it had with, with my... It reminds me of my old aunties and me swapping these books and them showing this one. Oh, you've got to read The 15 Streets. You have to read The 15 Streets. That's the best one she's ever written. And, um, and, and this. And then, of course, seeing the film adaptation with people in it that I'd, I'd met. It was just... It was so much more than the book for me. I loved everything about it. And the TV adaptation is spot on. It's, you know, it's it's quite grainy if you watch it. Oh, yeah. But, oh, it's lovely. That's part of the charm, it's though, isn't it? The sort of... Got it spot on, yes. Um, ha- and the way that I love about Catherine Cookson is sometimes, she doesn't do it in this one, but she sometimes, in I think it was The Dwelling Place, that this woman just has this, um, this shive of bread, as she calls it, on butter. And I read this and I, I could feel myself slavering because I've never... She could make a... a the way that this character, this starving character, eats this bread and butter just makes you want to throw yourself in the bread basket and just stick a French stick in your mouth whole. Um, I've, I've never... And she can do that. That's, a, to me, a sign of a, a great writer when they make you salivate. <laughs> I love that. The bread. <laughs> how, how, how do you think that she's influenced your writing? Oh, that's that's so easy. I mean, Catherine Cookson didn't start writing until she was 40, didn't get a, a, a book published until she was 44. She stuck to her roots. You know, she thought, I'm, I'm not right. I'm writing about the North. This is what I know. And um, when I first started writing, you know, I, I, I didn't think books about the North would sell. Um, of course, it was all very well admiring Catherine Cookson. But, you know, I'll never be a Catherine Cookson. Um, well, you're not and, far uh, off, well, I, I'm I'm about 123 million books behind her in sales. But um, you, my point is that, you know, when I started writing, I didn't think about writing, I didn't think anybody would be interested in books about the North. So I set my books in some kind of no man's land because I couldn't write effectively about the South. Um, and it was only like years later I thought, Crikey, Moses, you know, I, I should I should write about the North. I should really stick to my guns. It didn't do Catherine Cookson any harm whatsoever or Barry Hines, who, who came from the same town I did, and who, again, you know, wrote about the North. And I wrote about the North, and, um, and so it has been... Um, it has been my good luck charm, really, writing about the North. I mean, it's certainly when I thought at 40, crikey, you know, I better get a move on here. I'm getting a bit old. And you think, well, Catherine Cookson didn't even start until she was 40 and got the first book published at 44. You've still got time here. And um, I did write a poem about her um, a while ago about her because she was really was the lantern on my path. It was like, come on, you know, in my footsteps. I didn't start until I was a bit later. I wrote about the North and um, and wrote about what she knew. And and it, and it was it was a massive influence on me. Her books, this book was the first book that I ever kind of, 
sat there and sobbed, sobbed at this book. Happy tears and, uh, and sad tears. And I thought, I want to make people... I want them to have the emotional investment in my books that I've had in this. She was a massive, massive influence on me. I love that. And I love the way that we we keep those um those like patron saints around us when we're trying to learn how to do something, you know, especially I do think that people have so much solace in you see it every now and then going around the internet, like these different charts of what age different authors were when they started. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. They really are there. You do find so much solace in them and you kind of do need these patron saints around the place because it is such a, it's not really a job wherein you have colleagues, you know? Uh, you know, uh, uh, and yes, you know, it's always lovely to have those. And I, and again, like Catherine Cookson, I don't think I could have started writing any earlier mm. because um, I I have this this little kind of scene in my head where God thought, OK, right, this bird wants to write books. Well, I'm going to give her 40 years of, of great stuff and absolute total crap. And then I'm going to let her go. And and like Catherine Cookson, I think I had this massive scrapbook to call on and wouldn't have had the maturity, wouldn't have had the life experience to write before the age that I did. And we both started at the same time. We both started. Uh, I got my first book deal at 40. Um, and it was a couple of years later that I got published. And even though I have many, many millions of books behind her, um, that that's fine because she was she was a step on my ladder. Um, would I have got here if I'd never read her books and had this? Well, she did it. She's from the North. She started that age. I don't know. All I can tell you is that she was a massive influence and I did follow in her footsteps and I have got a writing career writing about the North. I'm... Honestly, I feel like I want to just stand on a box and applaud you now. That was just very, <laughs> just very moving. <laughs> Let's work on adding a few mil to that by telling you us about yes. your new books. My new book um, is called um, I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. And um, it's it's the story of six people who are um, all going somewhere on uh, Christmas, day before Christmas Eve. But um, they are all have to um, find shelter in this little inn where strange signs kind of direct them to because um, there's no way they can get to their destinations. Six people, uh, four men and two women. And um, there are three couples. There's Bridge and and, uh, Luke who are, were only meeting for five minutes to sign some papers to uh, begin the end of their divorce because they can't stand each other and now having to spend four or five days trapped over Christmas together. And then there's a, an older gay couple, Charlie and Robin, who are going off to Aviemore for a bells and whistles. Christmas dinner, all the um, you know Michelin star chef cooking their meal and they're having to now you know peel their own sprouts. And, um, and Jack and Mary. And Mary has been in love with Jack for four years. She's a young PA. He's an industry boss. Sees her no more than uh, the office stapler. And she was, they were going for this this meeting and this was her big chance, her platform to show Jack that she was all woman. And of course the meeting gets cancelled and she thinks, God, that's it. 
my, my chance has blown. And then ends up having to spend five days with him in this place. But is it too late? Oh, I love this. I love a locked door romance. Yes, but written in January um, before the rule of six came in over here and before oh, there was any lockdown. Had I written this at any other time, I would have avoided it like the plague because the last thing I wanted to, to do would have been to write a story about people being locked down together. <laughs> Oh but my God, that's hilarious. Pod, there, do you know there are no villains in this book? It's really weird. Um, and I didn't realise until um, my copy editor told me they're all really lovely people. Well, the villains are our feelings. <laughs> yes. But they're, our they're terrible feelings. And, I, you know, when I wrote this, I had a lot to get off my chest. Um, you know, I wrote it. My, my father died last Christmas and, and I, I wrote this in the January um, but by far be it being a therapeutic thing, I just needed something to cheer me up. So I kind of stuffed it to the gills full of joy and love and all the, the, the lovely feelings, the sort of the, the flip side of the coin to what was going on around me. And, uh, and for that, I think I've produced the book of my life, to be honest. Oh, wow. um, I, um, it, it's, I mean, we always say this. Everyone yeah, is the best that everyone. you can produce. But but this is a, it's got a weird kind of dynamic around it, rolled out of me very quickly. Um, it seemed to just reflect um, the, what was going on in the world six months later. As I say, the rule of six and, and it's almost mystical without even being mystical. So I have high hopes for this one. I'm waiting for the film deals to come rolling in any moment. I was just thinking, it does sound very sort of Hallmark Channel slash the Netflix Christmas movies they're making a lot now. Very easy to make also. Really easy, you know. If there's any producers out there, this is six people. So the, the budget would be really small. You could afford to get... Jason Momoa in um, to be the lead man, and I'd do it for nothing as the lead female, um, of course. And then, uh, and there's just this in, this in, and a snow machine. That's all you need. Fantastic. So it'd be, um, it would be, it would be lovely. But these things are, these things are magic coins. You know, we we do the job. We we write the we write the book. We write it for the the market, the UK market. If the foreign sales come in, if the the film deals come in, it's great. Um, but they're they're the um, they're the, they're icing on the cake. It's the cake that pays for my mortgage, and and that's what I need to concentrate on. If someone wants to come and slap some marzipan on and some million pound icing with a Netflix deal on it, perfect, you know. But well, it's said. we we write the books. We write the books, and uh, the only thing that matters is that we write the books and that you get to meet Jason Momoa. Yeah, that that's that would be lovely. those are the important yeah. things in life. Yes. Do you want million quid or do you want 50 quid? And we'll get you in with us, I guess. I'll probably take the million quid and then have a load of plastic surgery and then go and find Jason. Well, you've got a plan, so that's the thing. Uh, I have. I'm very ambitious. (laughs) (laughs) Millie, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's lovely to speak to you too. Thank you very much. Thank you for talking to me and thank you for introducing me to Catherine Cookson. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Dave for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.